forgot how to even start these things. Uh. <laughs> Welcome back to True Crime Trying, the podcast where... Uh, yeah, that. The planets align. Three friends chat about... There's three. There's three of us again. Uh, <laughs> true crime, astrology, and any weird bullshit we could fit into this podcast. <laughs> we are your host, Hannah. Sarah. And Meredith. Welcome to episode 88. Woo-hoo. I don't know why I said it like that. Anyways, true crime, astrology. Let's hit it. Do we have any housekeeping? I don't know. Nah, who fucking knows? Happy New Year. All right. Yes, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2023. Been a weird start. Mm-hmm. At least for me. Yeah. Yeah. But we have pulled our shit together enough to start recording again. If you are in anywhere near Northern California, Ooh. I hope no trees have fallen on your property and that all of your loved ones are safe. Yeah. I know. I got to celebrate New Year's Eve in the dark. Oh, and the power's out for 24 hours. Yeah, that sucks. Super fun, weird-ass start. I had a complete mental breakdown on my birthday, so, you know, doing great. Mm. But we're here. We have to give many thanks to Meredith for pulling all of the weight in December. Oh my god, thank (laughs) you Because holy shit, we were not (laughs) there. (laughs) So, we are going to open up the new year by giving her a bit of a break. And mm-hmm. I will tell a story. I basically wrote my entire dissertation in two weeks, so I also needed a break from writing. But <laughs> now we're back. So here we go. All right. I am bringing the story of the Backpacker Murders. Ooh. And we are going to Australia for this one. All right. And there's also a German connection. Which I wasn't expecting, but it makes a lot of sense for me. If Sarah loves Canada, <laughs> I have Germany. Okay. Canadian. This must be just be <laughs> universe saying, start learning German. So, there are two ways to present the information about this case. One, I could go the storytelling route and try to build suspense. Or two, I could do what I'm going to do, which is just tell the story in chronological order. Very Capricorn-like. <laughs> I was just like, I'm very <laughs> Hannah of you. Uh-huh. It, it gets a little confusing. Some, Nothing's changed. Sometimes, nope. Nothing has fucking changed, folks. Uh, New year, same you. Yeah. <laughs> that could be our hashtag for this episode. New year, same you. Yep, same me. I didn't make any resolutions. Because I'm perfect. Anyway, yeah, it gets a little confusing sometimes. So this is going to be the true chronology of the events and not the order that the police discovered each event basically okay yeah because sometimes that's really hard to go back and forth with all of the different reports too oh, yeah and like depending oh, yeah. on when things get actually submitted because they're not always released to the media because they hold stuff back oh um, yeah and so when it gets submitted in court if there is like an actual court case and documents and mm-hmm. stuff and it's like it's a fucking nightmare it's a whole mess i like order it's still capricorn season so i can cling to it <laughs> Australia is a big place, uh, and I don't know very much about Australian geography, although I do know now uh, quite a bit, but... Thanks to Chris. No. Oh, thanks to this. Thanks to researching this thing. I had the map, oh, Google Maps of Australia up on one of my screens to be like, <laughs> where are we now? 
How far? Okay. <laughs> well, I know we've been to Perth. Well, we're going to the opposite side. We're going to okay. go to the state of New South Wales, which is the state where Sydney is located. All right. Oh, awesome. And so that's the southeast area of the continent. And then based purely on what it looks like on Google Maps, this is not the outback. There's actually a lot of greenery and national forest in this area. Okay. Yeah, it's slightly more like subtropical, right? A bit. There. There's a lot of green. It must be a bit more subtropical. But yeah, it's a nice little green stretch and then it goes, looks like, to desert. Okay. <laughs> um, so the backpacker murders occurred in one of those national forests, the Belanglo State Forest. <laughs> this is going to be so <laughs> fun to keep saying that word. Belanglo. The Belanglo State Forest is located three kilometers, 1.8 miles, west of the Hume Highway that runs between Sydney and Canberra. And I'm only mentioning all this to say that these murders did not take place in the middle of nowhere, but relatively near population centers in Australia. So once again, forget everything you knew about Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Not desolate. No. Brownish red wilderness. No. Because once again, based purely on images from Google Maps, the Belanglo State Forest looks very nice. Okay. All the pine trees make it look like an American forest, but here the local wildlife include kangaroos and emus. Yay. In like a pine forest? Oh yeah, there's a picture of like an emu like walking on- I was not expecting that. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that either. (laughs) It also appears to be shit full of mushrooms. So, oh, cool. that's the yeah. prompt for you, Sarah. And, like, dangerous ones because the mushrooms that grow on conifers are not good for eating. They have both kinds, but they definitely have okay. the poisonous hallucinogenic ones, for sure. But, like, going, like, mushroom foraging is apparently a big thing. So, oh, cool. that's your prompt. Okay. Fungus? Blue Fungus. ringers. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, on December 28th, 1989, James Gibson and Deborah Everest both 19, left Melbourne and hitchhiked to Sydney to visit some of James's friends. Uh, the couple had met in mid-1989 at a concert, which really made me miss going to concerts. Fuck you, COVID. Deborah was a budding environmentalist and who had joined anti-logging protests along the east coast of Australia. James was at the very least into Deborah. I can't really <laughs> tell if he was also into environmentalism before he met Deborah, but... <laughs> The pair were going to go. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, the pair were planning to attend the Confest Conservational Festival after visiting their friends in Sydney. So very crunchy. Okay. Very crunchy. They left Sydney on December thirtieth, nineteen eighty-nine, to hitchhike to Walla. Not Walla Walla. Not Walla Walla, but it, it really, I really want to say that Walla, where the Walla. festival was being held, but they were never seen alive again. Hmm. The next day, on December 31st, Michael James was mountain biking through the Galston Gorge early in the morning. And Galston Gorge is not in the Belanglo Forest, which is south of Sydney, but rather just north of Sydney and the opposite direction in which Deborah and James were planning to go. Okay. And so Michael James came across a camera during his mountain biking, which he picked up and took home with him. A camera? Mm-hmm. Oh, spooky. And just kind of held on to that boy. On January 15th, 1990, both Deborah Everest and James Gibson were reported missing by their parents in their hometown of Melbourne, which is in Victoria, an entirely different state than New South Wales, and by car about nine hours away from Sydney. So if the Sydney police don't hear about this one, it's not so surprising. And in early December 1989, an Englishman with the best possible name 
Paul Thomas Onions. onions. <laughs> I guess Onions could have been the botanical prop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Paul Onions started his backpacking trip around the world. And then I imagine if I had married Paul Onions, that's too much Paul in my life because every male in my family is named Paul, but I could be Dr. Onions. <laughs> Dr. Onions. That would be great. Anyway, Paul started his uh, backpacking trip around the world. He first went to India, where he stayed in New Delhi for about a week, before flying to Singapore, where he stayed for a few days. And then after Singapore, he flew to Sydney, arriving a couple of days before Christmas. And he was planning to spend six months in Australia. Wow. So on January 25th, 1990, Paul started to hitchhike down the Hume Highway, intending to get to Melbourne. Just outside of Sydney, a man offered Paul a lift to Canberra, which Paul was totally on board with as they would cover the first third-ish of his journey. He described the man as, quote, five foot ten to six foot tall, about 40 years old, fit-looking in appearance, dark, short to medium-length hair, a black mustache similar to the one worn by Merv Hughes, but not as thick, wearing black sunglasses. <laughs> and so the Merv Hughes-style mustache came up multiple times, so I had to look it up. So Merv Hughes is a former cricketer, and yes, he does have an amazing fucking mustache. Looking it up. Oh right my now. god, like just seeing it. <laughs> I'm really not a mustache girl. Like, oh, I don't, I don't want to date Merv Hughes, but like seeing his mustache gave me the same little bolt of joy I get when I see a really good mullet. Okay. Holy smokes. That's impressive. It's impressive. I love it. I smiled when I saw the picture. You know what? <laughs> okay. I Yeah, sure. It's fun. It's a joyful, it's, it's a fun. fun, joyful mustache. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, Paul did not get picked up by Merv Hughes. Instead, he got picked up by a man who introduced himself as Bill. And Paul described his vehicle as a white Toyota or Nissan four-wheel drive. They started having a fairly basic conversation. You know, who are you? What do you do? Etc. Bill told Paul that he worked for the Roads and Traffic Authority in Liverpool, a mm. suburb of Sydney, and regularly traveled around southeastern Australia. The conversation took a turn for the uncomfortable when Paul innocently observed, quote, I'm surprised at how many Japanese there are in Sydney. And Bill turned aggressive, saying, We shouldn't have all of them in the country. It's the same with you Whoa. Brits. You shouldn't be in Northern Ireland. And I don't have an Australian accent, if that was not clear. <laughs> <laughs> And then Bill continued on a brief rant about immigration in general uh, while Paul tried to change the subject. And the atmosphere yeah. in the car was tense. So about 15 minutes later, Paul noticed that Bill had started to slow down and was continually looking in his rearview mirrors. And then suddenly, Bill pulled over to the side of the road. And he explained to Paul that they would soon lose the radio signal from Sydney at about this point in the trip. And he wanted to get some tapes from under the seat. Paul could see a number of tapes that were within reach and grew a little sus about what was happening. Yeah. Mm. Bill started rooting around under the driver's seat and Paul decided to get out of the car. This agitated Bill, who shouted at Paul, Why are you getting out of the vehicle? <laughs> I'm going completely anti-Australian on this one. <laughs> and Paul was like, Oh, just trying to stretch my legs. Whatever. No big deal. And mm. he got back in the car to calm Bill down. Bill kept rooting around under the seat. Although we'll talk about what rooting means later, but at this point I meant looking for something under the seat. Rooting. Then suddenly <laughs> straightened up and pointed a gun at Paul, telling him, this is a robbery. A robbery. Oh. Paul was not having it and started taking off his seatbelt. So Bill said, put that fucking seatbelt back on. Paul did not, <laughs> but rather bolted from the car and started running up the highway in a zigzag motion. Bill yeah. shouted after him, stop or I'll shoot. Stop. 
stop or I'll shoot. And then Paul heard a single gunshot. At this point, Paul was running in the roadway and three or four cars had to swerve to miss him, but they didn't stop. Oh. Then there was a stretch of time where there were no cars on the road. And Paul looked back and saw that Bill was chasing him, yelling at him to get back into the car. And Bill was even able to catch up with Paul and grab onto his shirt. Wow. Jeez. Paul wrenched away and ran across to the other side of the highway, leaving Bill holding a piece of his shirt. Wow. Not like wrenched away, like tore his shirt to get out of it. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. It's a real wrench. Paul was over cars just swerving around him. So when he saw a van approaching, he ran out into the road and stood right in front of it, holding his hands out. Like, hello, you're going to stop me. Yes. And the van screeched to a halt to avoid running him over. And oops, not Bill. Paul jumped to the passenger seat, locked the door and told the driver to drive, saying, he's got a gun. He's got a gun. And the woman saw that, yes, uh, the other man did indeed have a gun. So she made a U-turn and started heading north. Uh, in the rearview mirror, Paul could see Bill run back to his four-wheel drive, whatever it was, get in it, and drive away to the south. Okay, so he didn't pursue them. He did them. not pursue them. Okay. So the woman drove Paul to the Bowrell's police station, Bowrell being a town about 13 miles north of the Belongo State Forest. He made a report, but it seems like this information was never really followed up on by the police. Mm. After making the police report, Paul caught a train back to Sydney. And he finished up his six months in Australia. I probably would have fucked off and gone home. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, but Paul, braver man than me. Whole lot of no thanks right there. Like, I fucking hate Australia. <laughs> like, I thought it was all the animals that would kill you, not the humans. Not the humans. All right, so moving from January to March 13th, 1990, Wendy Delsberger was driving through Galston Gorge when she spotted a red backpack on the side of the road. Uh, she stopped and picked it up and saw that written inside was the name Gibson an address in Victoria, and a phone number. So the next day, Wendy called the number, thinking like, oh yeah, maybe they just lost their backpack. James's mother answered the phone, and Wendy learned it was more than that. Yeah. Wendy brought the backpack to the police. Thanks, Wendy. Wendy's like, oh, fuck. (laughs) On March 27th, 1990, a newspaper ran a story about the discovery of the missing backpack and the missing hikers, mentioning that James Gibson had a Ryko brand camera. Michael James had been holding on to the camera that he had found three months ago in Galston Gorge, and he immediately brought the camera to the police as well. And it, it was James's camera, but it doesn't seem like very much came from these two clues. They, were they, there wasn't any film? I mean, even huh. if there was film, I don't think he took a picture of the dude kidnapping them. I guess that's true. There's, there might have been pictures of James and Deborah, which made them sure that it was his camera. Yeah. All right. Jumping to the next year, January 20th, 1991, would be the last day that Simone Schmeidel was seen alive. Simone had been born in Germany and was 22 in 1991. And I don't have a birth date for her, but she may have been a Sagittarius because she definitely had the travel bug. Okay. (laughs) Her first trip was in 1987 when she visited Yugoslavia, which was at least a better year to visit than 1990, but probably still a bit tense. Especially for your first trip abroad. Yeah. In 1989, she visited Canada and Alaska, and she arrived in Australia on October 1st, 1990. 
Uh, Simone met up with a friend, and they bounced around between Sydney, Melbourne, and Queensland, hiking much of the way. On November 20th, 1990, Simone and her friend traveled to New Zealand, where they spent two months exploring that country, arriving back in Sydney on January 19th, 1991. Simone and her friend spent the night at a friend's house in Sydney, and then the next morning, January 20th, Simone struck off on her own, aiming to hitchhike down to Melbourne. I'm glad people don't hitchhike as much as they used to but i know on january 25th 1990 simone's mother Erwinia schmeidel reported simone missing to the melbourne police so Erwinia had just flown from germany to meet up with her daughter in melbourne but simone never showed up okay Erwinia also appeared to the media for help but she had to return to germany without knowing what had happened to her daughter oh my god I feel like I would never be able to go home. They come back and forth, but... uh, I live in Australia now. Yeah. I hate this fucking country, but I live here now. Yep. I don't think Simone's parents could speak English at all. And this is something I didn't think about, but when this finally went to trial, Simone's father came to the trial, but he couldn't understand anything. And so it's this, like, random person, Australian lady who knew how to speak German, just, like, translated for him the whole time. Wow. Which is really sweet. That's cool. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, December 26, 1991 was the last day that 22-year-old Gabor Nukenbauer and 21-year-old Anja Habscheid were seen alive. Uh, so the couple had been traveling around Europe for most of 1991. Uh, they had spent a few weeks in Indonesia before flying to Darwin in November 1991. And Darwin is in the Northern Territory. And it is about halfway okay. across the continent from Sydney, although it is close to Indonesia. So, Gabor and Anja followed the coast, traveling through Queensland and down to New South Wales, arriving in Sydney a few days before Christmas. Uh, They stayed at the original Backpackers Hostel in King's Cross for several days before leaving on December 26, 1991. They were really trying to see as much of Australia as they could possibly do, and so were planning to go from Sydney to Adelaide. which is in the South Australia state. It's a lot of geography wow. here. Southwest of Sydney. And then they're going to go to jump all the way back up to Darwin because they had a flight back to Indonesia on January 1st. I'm stressed out wow. by the time crunch on this one. That's, yeah. yeah that's a lot. Jesus. On January 30th, 1992, so the next month, Gabor and Aja were reported missing to the special branch Australian Federal Police by the Embassy of the Federal Republic of Germany. So Gabor and Anja had been due to return to Germany on January 24th, 1992, and Anja's father had gone to the Munich airport to pick them up. And so when they didn't show up, and, yeah. yeah, he started asking some questions and learned that there was no record of the couple even boarding the plane to begin with. Oh, yeah. What a way to find that out. Oh, my God. That's awful. Two months later, Gabor's parents arrived in Sydney, rented a camper van, and spent a month or so driving around kind of southeastern Australia, retracing their son's steps, uh, making inquiries at hostels along the way. But unfortunately, they did not learn anything of use and had to return to Germany. Ugh. That's heartbreaking. Okay, a couple months later, April 18th, 1992, was the last day that 22-year-olds Joanne Walters and Carolyn Clark were seen alive. Both girls had been born in the United Kingdom, Joanne in Mistag, Wales, I definitely said that wrong, and Carolyn in Surrey, England. I'm scared to travel to Wales, man. Those names. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> I mean, you've seen the Welsh city names and stuff. I was yeah. going to say, I was looking at Google Maps here, here and I was like, no, nah, no, nah, I can't go here. In <laughs> 1990, Joanne began her travels, uh, supporting herself by picking up part-time jobs along the way. She visited Greece, Italy, and Sardinia before flying to Sydney in 
June 1991 uh, with a friend she had picked up during her travels. Uh, and Carolyn started her travels around the world in August 1991, starting with touring around Europe with a friend before flying to Sydney on her own, arriving on September 19th, 1991. So Carolyn checked into a hostel, and about two months later, she met Joanne, who had returned to Sydney after exploring Queensland. These people are so busy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jeez. That's a lot of drama. Oh my god. The- Where are they getting this money? Well, Joanne at least had some took some part-time jobs and i'm gonna tell you actually because the pair hit it off and started traveling together and in february they were in mildura victoria picking grapes as a part-time job so there's one place okay okay and in early april they spent two weeks in tasmania they returned to sydney but didn't stay long leaving on april 18th 1992 planning to go back to mildura victoria but they would never arrive Mm. On May 29th, 1992, Joanne Walters was reported missing. So her parents had become concerned because they had not heard from her in a while. They knew that she had been traveling with Caroline Clark and somehow were able to track down the Clarks in England. And the Clarks also hadn't heard from their daughter since early April, so both families agreed to contact the police. The Walters contacted a former employer of Joanne in Sydney, who made the missing person report directly to the North Sydney police station, while sometime in early June, Carolyn was reported missing to the North Sydney Police Missing Persons Unit through Interpol. Okay. By late July 1992, the New South Wales Police Missing Persons Unit had identified six foreign backpackers who had disappeared all under similar circumstances. So these missing persons were Carolyn Clark and Joanne Walters, Gabor Nugenbauer and Anja Habscheid, Simone Schmeidel, and a young woman who had vanished from the Gold Coast several years earlier. At this point, James Gibson and Deborah Everest were native Australians and also residents in the state of Victoria, had not been connected with the others. Okay. So Sergeant Peter Marcone, the head of the missing persons unit, made a statement to the Sydney Morning Herald saying, quote, We've got nothing at this point to suggest they've been killed, but we've had a massive media campaign and we haven't been able to come up with anything positive. And it's not like these were the only six people who were missing. A Sergeant Marcone would also say in July 1992, there were 861 people regarded as long-term missing in New South Wales and about a further 400 more recent cases being investigated. Wow. What is the timeline for being officially declared dead? Or like, can they do that? Well, I don't know. It might be different in Australia, to be honest. Yeah, I think here it's seven years. You can at least, like, file for divorce or something if, like, you don't hear from... Collect your life insurance. Oh, yeah, get your life. That's what it is, not divorce. (laughs) All right, that was July. On September 19th, 1992, Keith Seeley and Keith Caldwell were on an orienteering training exercise in Belanglo State Forest. If you are like me and don't know what orienteering is, Wikipedia defines it as, quote, a group of sports that require navigational skills using a map and compass to navigate from point to point in diverse and usually unfamiliar terrain whilst moving at speed. It sounds kind of boring, but... Sounds like running and getting lost. Yeah. Yep. Running, getting lost, and, like, using your compass every now and then be like, where the fuck am I? All right. Still lost. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the keys were distracted from their math and compass by a particularly foul smell. Oh, God. They followed their nose and under... Cadaveries. Yes. Under a rock overhang and covered by dry sticks and leaves, they saw a bone, a boot, and some clothing. A foot? A boot. A foot? Oh, I think said a foot. There was a foot in the boot. There's a foot, a foot. Foot in the boot. Just trying some sort of accent. (laughs) 
Accidentally. <laughs> Accidentally. <laughs> they called the Balral police who showed up at the scene right away. The body was badly decomposed, but was identified as female, and there was evidence of at least 14 stab wounds to the neck, chest, and oh. back, cutting ribs, spine, and cervical vertebrae. Jesus. They also found what looked like to be a garrote on the ground near the victim's neck. There was evidence of sexual assault. This body mm. would be identified as Joanne Walters. Police fanned out and started searching the area around the first body. And on September 20th, the next day, a second body was found about 30 meters away from the first, also covered by branches and leaves. This body was also badly decomposed and showed signs of sexual assault. However, although the upper body did have a number of stab wounds, there were also 10 bullet entry wounds to the skull from five different angles. Wow. A red cloth had been wrapped around the head before the shooting, and 10 22 caliber Winchester cartridge cases were found near the body. And this body would be identified as Carolyn Clark. Okay, over the next few days, the police searched an area 300 meters around the crime scenes, but nothing more was found. The investigators in charge then briefed Dr. Rod Milton, a forensic psychiatrist, who drew up a profile of the unsubs, very Ooh. criminal lines of him. With these characteristics, Dr. Milton kind of, you nailed it, mostly. So, the killers or kill the killer or killers were familiar with the forest. The victims had been killed for pleasure because they mm. had been killed in different ways with different weapons, and because two victims mm -hmm. had been abducted and killed together, there were likely to have been two killers, probably brothers. The older brother was probably in his late 20s to mid-30s and was the dominant partner. He was probably also the shooter. The younger brother was rebellious and not very smart, but submissive to the elder, and he was more likely to be sexually motivated. It was likely that they lived locally and belonged to a local gun club. They were probably involved in hunting and were not very sociable. The shooter showed signs of needing to be in control. They probably lived in isolation in the bush and neither would have talked much to their victims. Okay. I think there is a Criminal Minds episode that somewhat mirrors There this. probably is. It sounds familiar. It's the one where the brothers hunt. I was going to say, that's yeah. it's like in Montana or, or something. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 But it's also still like pine foresty, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Dr. Milton got a lot of information from these two bodies, and he really fucking nailed it. But let's mm -hmm. keep going. The police don't know that. <laughs> In November 1992, the New South Wales government offered a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer or killers. This offer also included the possibility of a free pardon to any accomplice who had not committed the actual crime. The police followed leads and did further forensic and ballistic analysis, but by the end of 1992, they were no closer to solving the murders of Joanne Walters and Carolyn Clark. Hmm. The second pair of bodies, belonging to James Gibson and Deborah Everest, would not be discovered until October 5th, 1993, by local wow. civilian Bruce Pryor who had spent a lot of time in the Belanglo State Forest hiking and gathering firewood. And Bruce thought that the police should have spent more time searching after finding Joanne and Carolyn's body. And so he searched the forest for himself on several different occasions, oh. but didn't find anything wow. until October 5th. It was the early 90s, so maybe we can't judge Bruce too much on how he handled the body that he found, but it went like this. 
The mm. first two bodies have been discovered near the Long Acre Creek Fire Trail, and so on October 5th, 1993, Bruce was searching near the upper Long Acre Creek Fire Trail. Bruce soon spotted what he thought was a human bone. This is the part we don't like. He picked it up, <laughs> examined oh. it. Oh, this looks human. And put it back down Gross. and continued searching. About 30 minutes later, he came across a human skull that showed signs of violence. He was out, you know, in the forest. He, there weren't really cell phones. So he wrapped the skull up in a sweater to take with him to the oh, Bull police no. station. Right, Bruce. Hey, guys. Bruce. <laughs> you could have just, like, no, taken him back it. to where you found him, but whatever. Ugh. All right, Bruce. Well... He would take the police back to where he discovered the bones, and the police would uncover the human remains of a person lying at the base of a tree. Uh, some of the bones mm. had been scattered by animals, but the skull and upper part of the body showed signs of multiple stabbings and fractures. Uh, mm. Some partly degraded woman's clothing was found near the body, and it had numerous cut and slash marks, indicating that the victim had been wearing them when she was attacked. Oh. The police found the second body about 20 meters from the first. This body was male, clothed, lying in the fetal position by a log and covered with leaves and sticks. Not bound at uh, all? Although they hmm. did find four lengths of insulation tape nearby. Okay. This body also had multiple stab wounds to the chest and back. And then about 14 meters from the bodies, investigators found a tree trunk with nine bullets in them. Eight had been damaged beyond identification, but the ninth was identified as a 22 caliber bullet. Wow. Damn. All right. Needless to say, the discovery of this second set of bodies by a civilian 13 months later after the police had done a quote-unquote extensive search of the Belonglo State Forest was quite embarrassing to the police. Yeah. So Task Force Air was quickly assembled to investigate the backpacker murders, and Clive Small, a New South Wales police officer, was put in charge. Clive Small is also the author of the book that I used for the majority of this research. Malot Sweet. Cohen, Inside Australia's Biggest Manhunt, Cohen, A Detective Story. Clive Small <laughs> definitely has some strong opinions about some of his fellow officers, <laughs> and he okay. devotes a whole chapter to one of them. I did enjoy reading all the drags. <laughs> Clive. Gotta keep it interesting. Stir up some drama. Clive Small is also convinced that the backpacker murderer acted alone. But there are also people on the other side who believe that the backpacker murders were conducted by more than one person, um, all acting together. And so I believe the other main book about these murders, called Sins of the Brother, the definitive story of Ivan Malat and the Backpacker Murders by Mark Whittaker, might spend more time on that possibility, but I did not read that one. There was no okay. Kindle option, and the paperback cost $63.98 as no. is January yeah. 9th, 2023, so pass. No thanks. Sorry, Mark. All right, the task force began an extensive search, an actual extensive search, that would eventually cover a total of 24 square kilometers. We're going to pause for a cute okay. mental picture before we get back to dead bodies. There okay. are also two specially trained cadaver dogs on the job. Yay! Aww. And since the terrain was so rugged, the they had to wear cute little boots to protect their little feet. Aww. Oh! Aww. Fucking love it. <laughs> Your cats do too, apparently. Yes. Now, Clive Small did not give the cadaver dogs credit for the next discovery, but I'm not sure if he is the kind of person who would give a dog credit, and I would like to pretend the dogs discovered this. I'll say Clive is also yeah, let's do a that. little defensive on how the investigation was conducted. But on November 1st, 1993, the skeletal remains of Simone Schmeidel were found. 
Once again, the body was somewhat hidden under a pile of leaves and twigs. Preliminary examination revealed multiple stab wounds to the chest and back. A length of soft wire tied in the shape of a noose was found nearby. As with all the other victims, there was no sign of Simone's backpack. Three days later, searchers first found a brown leather sandal with a broken strap, and about 15 meters away, the skeletal remains of Anja Habscheid were found, buried under forest debris. The remains of a pink shirt showed signs of multiple stabbings and slashing. Her spine had been severed by a knife, and the skull was missing, and they would never find it. Oh my god. Gabor Nugenbauer's remains were found about 50 meters from Anja's. The skull was present and had six bullet holes in it. Whoa. And a cloth had been tied over the mouth as a gag. Okay. Overkill much. Near the body, investigators found more 22 Winchester cartridges. A weathered green cardboard ammunition packet with the words Winchester brand, winner model, 22 caliber cartridge with a partial batch number, and an ammunition packet for Eli Subsonic hollow point 22 caliber bullets with a legible batch number. I'm not a gun nerd, and I kind of glaze over this part, so I'm not really going to talk about very much of this, but mm-hmm. this is the same caliber of bullets that were found near Carolyn Clark's body. And there was a little bit, like, batch numbers that they could kind of follow up on. That's helpful. My eyes glaze over when they ballistics come into play. They did come into play a, a number of times in this book. And I was like, yeah, I believe you. Whatever. Moving on. Like, past the physics that are sometimes interesting, I'm just kind of like... I don't know anything about guns. guns though. I'm like... Like, I know a 22. And I, was I don't know a 22. Too, like, damage beyond recognition. Like, the bullets weren't recognizable as 22s. But I feel like you could probably weigh them and be like, oh, this is enough mass to be either this bullet or this bullet. Unless they're, like, so sheared apart that they're not even together anymore, but... They're just Those are the ones shot into a trunk. Yeah. yeah. They did actually find a couple bullets within Carolyn Clark's skull that I think were more usable, but... Guns, guys. I guns. don't want to disparage gun nerds, because I don't want to get shot, but man, it's a boring hobby. <laughs> Galston Gorge was also searched, since James Gibson's backpack and camera had been found there, and James and Deborah's murders were now thought to be linked to the other murders... Nothing else was found in Galston Gorge, though. And when the search of the Belango State Forest was finished, the police had collected more than 200 exhibits, which would be sent to the appropriate department for detailed forensic studies. On November 11, 1992, the New South Wales government had approved a reward of $100,000 for information about the murder of Joanne Walters and Carolyn Clark. And a year later, the government increased this reward to $500,000, which at the time was the largest reward ever offered in Australia. Uh, Calls began to start flooding in, and within 24 hours of the announcement of the increased reward, police received 5,100 calls and tips. Jeez. For hopes of just being correct or what? Maybe also trying to be helpful, but... Yeah. It's a lot. Okay. Now, I did say that I was going to tell the story in chronological order. I did lie a little bit. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wanted to get all the bodies discovered before getting into the um, investigation. So we're going to jump yeah. back a month to October 18th, 1993, when a Detective Sergeant Kevin Hammond visited the Belonglo Pistol Club to ask around, and a member of the club suggested that Hammond should talk to another member, Alex Malat. So Alex came in, he was totally fine, and he talked about passing two cars in the Belanglo State Forest, and... For each car, Alex was able to give details about the driver, a male passenger, and a woman who was sitting in the back seat and was gagged. Alex claimed to have written down the registration number of the second vehicle, but then had lost a piece of paper. But to the best of his recollection, quote, 
The following letter combinations and numbers have some significance to me. They are ALD-537, ALO, DAL, and ACL. This was all vague enough to be completely useless. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Alex also made the hair on the back of the investigator's neck stand up. Because he had admitted to seeing women bound. And he even said that he saw fear in their eyes. But he didn't stop or call the police or anything. Because as he said, quote, He was of the opinion that it was just some young blokes taking some girls into the forest to have a good time. That's not a good time. What the fuck? Mm-mm. Oh my god. That's his idea of a good time, and they should just arrest him. Yeah, on yep, yeah. Not maybe not even for these murders. You're just a fucking creep. Yeah, that's disgusting. I mean, yeah. About the same time, a woman named Lynn Butler contacted the police. Her husband and her husband's friend both worked at Boral Australian Gypsum Limited, and about a week together, the trio were all getting together, having a drink, and of course, the news about the bodies being found in the Belanglo State Forest was a hot topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. And then both men admitted that they had another co-worker who had been saying some very sus things over the last year. Uh, this co-worker went by the name Paul Thomas Miller, not Onions. <laughs> okay. So sometime around Easter 1992, before any of the bodies had been found, but there had been widespread media coverage about the missing backpackers, completely out of the blue, Paul Miller had subtly announced, I know who killed the Germans. Okay. Uh, okay. Immediately but... after saying that, he changed the subject. Then about five months later, after Joanne Walters and Carolyn Clark's bodies had been found, Miller chimed into a conversation about these discoveries saying, quote, there's more bodies out there. They haven't found them all yet. Ugh. And then later that day, Gross. in a different conversation, Miller said, quote, you could pick up anybody on that road and you'd never find them again. You'd never find out who did it either. Wow. <laughs> uh, and then a few weeks later, he would say, quote, there are two Germans out there that haven't been found yet. Mm. And then during Jesus. yet another conversation... <laughs> This one about the sentences imposed by the courts on rapists, Miller said, quote, Stabbing a woman is like cutting a loaf of bread. I can't <sighs> imagine it would be at all, to be honest. Um, no. A very, like, not, you You're know. not very good at baking bread. Because <laughs> it takes a lot of force to stab someone, well, and right? So bones yeah. it. You've got some overdone bread. Yeah, I'm like, it's not. I've never stabbed a woman, but it's not. I don't think stabbing a woman is that different than stabbing a man. Not that I can say I know. But at first, the two men had dismissed Paul Miller's comments, thinking that he was just high, as some of his co-workers would say that smoking weed was Miller's full-time job. (laughs) Okay. Not a great worker. He was also constantly changing the color and style of his hair and beard, including at one point Mm. a Merv Hughes-style handlebar mustache. Okay. The two men also knew that although this man went by Paul Thomas Miller at work... He had another name, Richard James Malat. So, there's the Malats again. Mm-hmm. And Richard and Ivan, another brother, had been separately mentioned as suspects, but more based on bad vibes than anything concrete. And so there was a common view that, quote, the Malats are strange. They have been in trouble mm-hmm. with the police. Several other brothers were, quote unquote, gun nuts, etc., etc. And then by November 11th, 1993... The news had reached Paul Onions in England, who called the Australian police and told them his story about being picked up by, quote-unquote, Bill. Mm-hmm. At this point, the police made the investigation of the Malat family a priority, especially Richard and Ivan. 
They knew that Ivan owned a vehicle similar to the one described by Paul Onions, and that he often used the name Bill. And just to make it more confusing, he also had a brother named Bill. What? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, dudes. <laughs> Why would you go by that name? I don't know. Unless you were, like, using his ID or oh, something. Yeah. Um, I guess. Trying to, like, get alcohol above your drinking age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the police began looking into credit card statements, employment records, etc., to determine whether the brothers could be ruled in or out. And at, at the very least, Richard had an airtight alibi for James and Deborah's murder. He was at work. Mm-hmm. Eh. And that's just one. Ivan worked for the Roads and Traffic Authority, the same place that Bill had told Paul that he worked. Oh. Let's meet the Malats. It's gonna suck. Mm-hmm. The patriarch, Stefan, was born in Croatia... This is a black mark on Croatia. I don't like that at all, but whatever, Stefan. He was born in Croatia to parents who had what I think is the worst luck with children that I have found so far. Stefan was one of 22 children. (gasps) Holy motherfucking shit. Only four of which survived past infancy. No. (laughs) That is so sad. Uh, When he was 24, Stefan moved to Australia. And eight years later, he would meet 14-year-old Margaret Piddlesden, and the couple would marry two years later. Stefan and Margaret would go on to have 14 children. I think they all survived to adulthood. Ivan being the fifth, born on December 27th, 1944, making him a Capricorn. Mm -hmm. Stefan was a hard worker and a heavy drinker, described as strict but fair, but maybe also a bit of a guy that whacked his kids around. Oh. You know, yeah. he was the 40s. Uh, Margaret was very permissive and protective of the children. And no matter how hard a worker Stefan may or may not be, he could never earn enough money to support his very large family. So the children yeah. had to leave school early to find jobs. And Ivan left school at 15, at which point he also started having run-ins with the police. Mm. Yeah, can imagine. Yeah. In 1962, when he was 17, Ivan was put on probation on charges of stealing from a house, which I had misread as horse the first time I read this book. Stealing from a horse. Don't take that horse's shoes. He needs <laughs> I <those>. loved it. <laughs> he did not do probation very well because a few months later, he was arrested again for breaking and entering with intent to steal. Since he was on pro- still on probation, he was sentenced to six months in an institution, probably a juvenile institution. I don't yeah. think a psychological yeah. one. Two years later, he was charged with two charges of breaking, entering, and stealing, and was convicted and sentenced to 18 months in jail for each charge. In the midst of his trips in and out of prison, Ivan still had time to begin an affair with his older brother's wife, Marilyn. What? Jesus. Bill's wife? Uh, no. There's a lot of brothers in this family. Okay. Bill never really comes up. Marilyn would have a child in 1965, and it was an open family secret that the child was Ivan's, not Boris's. Oh. It was also an open family secret that Ivan had been fucking his sister, Shirley, since the early 1950s, when she was in her 20s. Ew. When asked about the incest... Ivan's brother Richard would say, quote, what's the difference, one or the other, if you're doing with your sister or your mate up the road? A fucking lot. A (laughs) fucking lot, Richard. Jesus fucking Christ. What's the difference? Gross. (laughs) Yeah, anyway. All right. 
I'm not exactly sure if Ivan served his whole sentence from 1964 because he had time to have an affair and was also arrested again in November 1965 for stealing a car, electrical goods, and a cool leather jacket. (laughs) It had to be cool. Uh, A year later, he was sentenced to two years in jail, but obviously didn't serve that whole sentence because he was released in April 1967. A little too early, in my opinion, because he was arrested four months later as an accessory to stealing. Okay. From a horse. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The horse was the main witness. In October 1967, he was convicted and sentenced to three years hard labor, and I think he actually served most of this one. Okay. Okay. On April 10th, 1971, out of prison, Ivan picked up two 18-year-old female hitchhikers. He raped one of the girls, but they managed to get away and report this to the police. In August 1971, Ivan's younger brother, Michael, had been arrested for a bank robbery, and Michael named three accomplices, including his brother, Ivan, whom Michael said was the getaway driver. On August 7th, Ivan was interviewed about the bank robber and told that his brother had implicated him, to which Ivan replied, quote, If your brother puts you in, it's not much good trying to get out of it. I was in it, but it wasn't my idea. <laughs> okay. Ivan was charged with assault and robbery while armed, but was released on bail. While he was on bail, a warrant was issued for Ivan's arrest for the earlier rape. Uh, Ivan was 27 at this point and spent most of the past decade in and out of jail, did not want to go back, so he jumped bail. And he faked his own suicide by leaving his shoes at The Gap, not the store, (laughs) the Ocean Cliff in Sydney, which is a popular tourist destination, but also a popular place to die by suicide. It looks gorgeous on Wikipedia, though. Do people leave their shoes I don't know why you would, but his shoes make a difference. He's trying to fake his own death, I guess. So they like. If I was jumping off, like, look, he's no longer here. He left his shoes. I I would have taken the time to take my shoes off, but you know. He lived in New Zealand for three years before he was rearrested on April 25th, 1974. Ivan believed that it was Boris who had turned him in. And if I was Boris, fucking yeah, I'd turn that little shit in. God. Yeah. (laughs) Turns out that he didn't need to go on the run because in December 1974, he was acquitted on both the robbery and assault charges and the rape charges. What? What? The rape trial was especially ugly and disgusting. Ivan claimed that it was consensual sex and his lawyer Mm. accused both Mm. women of being lesbians who were receiving psychiatric treatment and taking prescription drugs, all things that were not very acceptable in Australia in the 70s. And his lawyer actually was a secret homosexual. (laughs) Great. But he, like, fucking knew it would work, I think, because he was a homosexual. Yeah. Okay. In October 1975, Ivan met 17-year-old Karen Merle Duck doing some quick math, pre-math. Ivan was 31. Yeah, she was 17. No, 17. No. Karen was six weeks pregnant with another man's baby, who may have been Ivan's cousin. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, when she met Ivan. And she did tell about that once they started dating about two weeks later. And about a week after that, Ivan stopped the car, walked around to Karen's side, and grabbed her by the throat, forcing her to have sex with him. No. Despite this, Karen continued dating Ivan. 
No. Her son Jason Mm-mm. was born in July 1976. Karen would say that Ivan was a good stepfather to Jason and spoiled him, buying him all sorts of presents. Karen had considered having an abortion, but decided against it and said that Ivan had complimented her on her decision. She also expressed a desire to have another baby, and at first Ivan agreed with her, saying that he would like to have a little girl. But then he subtly changed his mind and told Karen that he would shoot her if he ever found out she was pregnant. Uh, okay. <sighs> and this rocky relationship went forward, on and off, the only constant being Ivan's abuse. According to Karen, the abuse was less about physical violence than about wanting absolute control over her. And so Ivan would okay. control the money and only ever gave her enough money to buy food. He was obsessed with cleanliness and would constantly criticize her housekeeping and cooking. And then once in 1982, Ivan lost his temper and smashed a coffee table to pieces. He then gathered all the pieces, left them in a pile in the living room to serve as a reminder to Karen to not challenge him. Jeez. Wow. Karen and Ivan got married in 1983. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Why? The relationship just continued to get worse. Karen would leave him, but she kept going back, claiming that she loved him. Sometimes, yeah. I don't know what Karen's, like, past was, or childhood was like, but I can't imagine. Sounds like she was just straight up groomed, though, which she was, right? Mm -hmm. So. Oh, yeah. She had no idea what a real relationship would have been like. Yeah. Sometimes, when they were in the car together, Ivan would see a girl hitchhiking, and he would ask Karen what she thought would happen to that hitchhiker. And then he told her that the hitchhiker would, quote, was going to get rooted. Killed and rooted. No. <laughs> rooted? There's that word again. Australian slang yeah. for having sexual intercourse. No. Oh, that's right. We talked about Australian slang. In... We have brought th- this up before. Oh. I'm not sure how yeah. vulgar this slang word is in Australia. It sounds bad to me, but it might just be because Ivan's saying it. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of, like, how, like, pigs root around the ground. Oh. Morals yeah. or not more uh, truffles. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, I don't think it's great. Is it better or worse than saying fuck? I don't know. I'm not an Australian scholar. In 1987, Karen finally left for good after Ivan threw a glass at the front door during a fight, almost hitting Jason. Okay, mm. so she could take the abuse, but not not for her yeah. Son. Year later, there was a fire at Karen's mother's home, uh, which Jesus. had been deliberately set and destroyed the family car. And garage and another car that was parked nearby. Karen wow. firmly believed that Ivan set the fire, as Ivan had earlier confronted Karen's mother, demanding her to tell him where Karen was living and threatening to burn her house down if she didn't. So, yeah, probably he did. <laughs> yeah, he probably did. After Karen left for good, Ivan had a number of girlfriends, including Marilyn again. Oh, for fuck's sake. By sakes. this point, Boris and Marilyn had divorced. Boris did try to stick around and raise his brother's son, but it didn't last. And mm-hmm. Boris was had been estranged from the Malat family for about 15 years at this point. Understandably, Boris. Yeah. In October 1989, Ivan and Karen's divorce was finalized. And so to Ivan, this was a humiliating proof that he had lost control of Karen. And he did not mm-hmm. like to lose control. Two months later, James Gibson and Deborah Everest would disappear. Okay, so that was the breaking point. In 1992, Ivan would move in with his sister, Shirley, who's been fucking for... A long time. Oh, goddamn. Like, 40 years? Yeah. And then in mid-1993, Ivan would begin dating Shalinder Hughes, who he was introduced to through Shirley. 
Oh, she's like, ugh. Uh-huh. Gross. On February 26, 1994, the task force put Ivan Mala under surveillance. On May 5th, Paul Onions was shown a photo lineup, and he identified the photo of Ivan as the man who had called himself Bill and had attempted to kidnap him. At this point, the task force had enough to charge Ivan with the attempted abduction of Paul Onions, and they could arrest him, no bail, and then have time to kind of build the other charges of murder. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking you're going to say Paul Holes for some reason. Not that Paul. Paul. I don't know why. I'll be gone in the dark again. So uh, I'm surprised I haven't slipped. On May 22nd, 1994, Ivan Malat was arrested. While at the same time, the police conducted raids on Ivan's and other Malat family properties. Uh, Ivan remained calm and almost seemed to be enjoying the attention, while also believing that he was smart enough to wiggle his way out of this. As they do. Suspicious or incriminating items were found in almost every room of Ivan's house, including a bunch of ammunition and guns, which I'm not going to go into, but I just trust the police when they say it matched ammunition found at the crime scenes, whatever. Okay. There was also Indonesian currency in the bedroom. Ivan had never been to Indonesia, but Gabor and Anja had. Camouflage knife similar to one described by Paul Onions, and sleeping bags and other camping gear similar to that owned by Deborah Everest and Simone Schmeidel. Especially incriminating was a metal water bottle that had scratches on the lid. And then using infrared photography, police would identify Simone's nickname was written on the lid and he had tried to scratch it off. Okay. Huh. When asked to explain why he had these items, Ivan would usually respond with a shrug and some form of denial. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> I'll understand the question. I don't know. I just found it on the side of the road. They also went to Alex Malat's house, They where they also found a lot of twenty two caliber ammunition and Simone Schmeidel's backpack. And oh. when asked where the backpack came from, Alex's wife told them that Ivan had given it to her. At his mother Margaret's house, they found more items that belonged to the missing backpackers and a twenty two rifle and a rifle sight with the name Ivan engraved on it. They also searched both Richard and Wally's properties. Or two, Wally was another brother of Ivan, and they found more items as well as, as enough other evidence to convict both Richard and Wally of drug and firearms offenses. Great. Uh, Ivan's girlfriend was in complete shock. She allowed the police to search her home. Uh, they didn't find anything at Shalinder's house, but at Ivan's house, they found a photo album with a photo of Shalinder wearing a green and white striped Benetton top that was exactly like the one owned and worn by Carolyn Clark. I'm sure he enjoyed watching her wear. Oh, that's mm. so gross. Ivan's trial began on March 11th, 1996. The prosecutor would acknowledge that their case was circumstantial, but they had a shit ton of circumstantial evidence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they probably didn't say it like that, but it was Australia, they might have. When Ivan was presented with the fact that his possession of such large quantities of property belonging to the eight backpackers was a amazing coincidence. Oh, yeah. I replied, oh, well, yes, I suppose so. Uh, He would go on to suggest that someone had planted all that evidence, implying that it was most likely Wally or Richard Malat. They did spend a decent amount of time in court talking about mustaches. (laughs) Ivan denied having a Merv Hughes-type mustache in 1990. Uh, The jury was then shown a photo of Ivan with the mustache in 1990, and a picture of Merv Hughes. And the defense would concede that Ivan did have a mustache, but argued that it could not be described as a Merv Hughes mustache 
referring to it instead as a, quote, drooping Mexican-type mustache, which is basically... <laughs> like, you just, you wish you had a mustache like him, basically. I was going to say, saying. like, <laughs> basically the same, like, handlebar mustache, drooping Mexican mustache, Marv Hughes, are all the same fucking thing. Yeah. Uh, the defense would close by saying, quote, There can be absolutely no doubt that whoever committed all eight offenses must be within the Malat family or very, very closely associated with it. Blind Freddy can see that, whoever Blind Freddy is. <laughs> hey. uh, there can be absolutely no doubt. The question is, who is it within the Malat family? Who has committed these eight offenses? Regardless as to whether the jurors thought that other members of the Malat Malat family were involved. They were convinced that Ivan was definitely involved. And so on July 27th, 1996, Ivan Malat was convicted and sentenced to seven life sentences for murder and six years for, quote, detention for advantage of Paul Onions. Okay. The victims came from all over the world and their families wanted to be there for the trial, saying, quote, the families of the backpacker murder victims needed to be in court to represent their murdered child. They didn't want people thinking about their child just as a victim of the backpacker murder. They wanted people to know it was their son or daughter who was part of a loving family and to understand that their children were good, down-to-earth, loving kids. And then mm. while in Australia for the trial, the families were able to stay at the Ebony House, which had been opened in December 1995 after receiving a grant from the government. And it was operated by the Homicide Victim Support Group and was developed when the group identified the need for some sort of quote-unquote recovery center for people who were affected by the death of a loved one. It was oh. free to stay there, and all seven families of Ivan Malat's murder victims stayed there at some point during the trial. And I just, I just love this. I just wanted to, I just wanted yeah. to kind of shout this out. Yeah. I don't know if we have a good counterpart to this in America, but I just love giving them a place to stay. And just the whole idea mm -hmm. of the homicide victim support group, which has been pretty active in Australia and been integral to bringing about significant changes in the criminal justice system, moving it to a more victim-oriented kind of focus and less of an offender-oriented focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to transition back to the offender. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Ivan kept himself busy in prison. Oh, Lord. Did he write books? No. Pamphlets? I'm not sure if he could write. <laughs> prison pen pals? <laughs> no. But in March 1997, he concocted an escape plan with a fellow inmate. But the authorities would find out about their plan. So that was... Escape was... Foiled. Foiled again! <laughs> and when it was foiled, the other inmate hung himself that night. But Ew. Ivan decided to keep going. Oh, In 1999, mm. police officers searching Malat's, Malat's cell found a hacksaw blade in a biscuit packet. Whoa! How'd he get that in there? A hacksaw in a biscuit packet? Uh-huh. Or like a razor blade in a... Nope, because two years later, he swallowed razor blades, paper staples, and a small chain from a pair of nail clippers. So they, they huh. differentiated between the hacksaw blade and razor blades. Okay. Later that same year, he swallowed part of the flushing mechanism from the toilet in his cell. What? Yum. And in early 2003, <laughs> he deliberately broke his own hand. Just... This reminds me Maybe of... Maybe to go um, to the infirmary to get meds or something? Attention? Who was the guy who uh, stuck the antenna up his butt? Ew. And, and kept putting... Albert um, Fish? His own urine in his ear to get to the hospital. Oh, I don't remember. Albert Fish put a lot of stuff up his butt, but I don't think this is Albert Fish. No. But, like, as a as a way yeah. to get 
like to a lower because well, he's in a super max situation prison in australia so yeah going to the hospital yeah. is a little chiller yeah in 2006 the media found out that ivan had a television and toaster in his prison cell no toast for you they were rewards for good behavior for not engaging in acts of disobedience or self-harm and for not being likely to escape meh he tried though i know and he kept swallowing things sharp <laughs> things the public was incensed, and the executive director of the Homicide Victim Support Group described the privileges as an insult to the families of his victims. Yeah. Yep. Carolyn Clark's father was quoted as saying, He didn't give any privileges to any of our children. As far as I'm concerned, he can rot. I wouldn't yeah. agree to him being given anything. It's a joke. Yeah. Mm-mm. Within hours of the story breaking, the television and toaster were removed, and a review of the reward system in the Supermax system was ordered by the government. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, if this guy can fucking get it, then we're doing something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. January 26, 2009, Ivan cut off the little finger of his left hand just below the knuckle using a plastic knife, and I don't even know how you could do that. With a plastic uh-huh. knife? Like, right at I- the joint? Yeah, right below. Yeah, it would not go through bones, so it'd have to be. That's crazy. That's determination with a plastic knife. With a knife? plastic knife. I mean, I, you can sharpen it, but still, that's a slow, like, it's that's not a- agonizing. It's, yeah, it's not like a butcher blade. I, I mean, it's fine, but like, the fuck? Well, Ivan placed the dismembered digit in an envelope and attempted to mail it to the High Court of Australia to force an appeal, which I also don't understand how that would work. It's just not much of a threat to cut off your own damn finger. Yeah. Like, okay, thank you. Ivan was taken to the hospital, but doctors decided that it would not be possible to reattach the finger. Sucks so he was sent mm-hmm. back to the Supermax prison, and a prison official would make the statement, quote, when you cut a finger off, it does hurt. He's back in... <laughs> yeah, thanks, sir. He's back in an observation cell this morning, dressed in a gown, feeling sorry for himself. We believe he's starting another hunger strike. Oh, okay. But he likes his food, so it will only last a day or two. When he does take his next meal, he won't be getting a knife with it. He shouldn't be getting any utensils at this point. I know, eat with your hands. Get a spoon that's, like, made of cardboard that you have to eat your meal fast enough that it doesn't turn into... Like those fucking paper paper straws. straws. I hate paper straws. (laughs) (laughs) Hunger strikes were one of Ivan's favorite methods of protest, but they never really got him what he wanted. No shit. (laughs) I don't like you're not eating fine whatever in May 2011 I went on a nine-day hunger strike an unsuccessful attempt to be given a playstation Uh, ew he would lose about 33 pounds in those nine days nine days huh Uh uh-huh okay yeah which is 15 kilograms since we are in Australia but he did not receive a playstation Good. The prison commissioner would tell the Sunday Telegraph, quote, There's no inmate on my watch who would ever get anything close to a PlayStation, let alone Australia's worst serial killer. This guy's like a fucking toddler mm-hmm. on steroids. Yeah. Like throwing a tantrum, hurting himself just to like get attention. Mm-hmm. Like, no, buddy. Well, in May 2009, Ivan was diagnosed with terminal esophageal cancer, maybe because he kept swallowing a bunch of sharp things. Yeah. Jeez, yeah. And I don't actually think that's what causes cancer. But well, no, but 
an but, infection. But constant trauma to yeah. a tissue yes. can cause like chronic inflammation and everything. Yeah. And the chronic inflammation can exactly. lead to Exactly. I went to the Mayo Clinic website and they said it's not <laughs> exactly clear what causes esophageal cancer, although chronic irritation of the esophagus may contribute to changes that cause cancer. The Mayo Clinic list included risk factors such as gastroesophageal reflux disease, smoking, drinking alcohol, having a steady habit of drinking very hot liquids, or having bile reflux. They didn't include eating razor blades, but I assume it's a very rare risk factor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Holy fuck. We're we're talking under normal circumstances, maybe. If you like your tea a little too hot. Or if you have not GERD. It is GERD. I was just, I didn't want to use the abbreviation. Oh. Acid reflux disease. Oh, that's the abbreviation. Yeah. 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 Ivan Milat died of esophagus and stomach cancer on October 27th, 2009. His final request was that his funeral should be paid for by the New South Wales government. No, just burn him. Well, the New South Wales government said not so much, and Ivan's body (laughs) was cremated and and paid for from what was left on his prison account. He paid for his own cremation. Uh, While he was on his deathbed, uh, deathbed. While he was on his deathbed, police officers visited. That's my. That's Australia. Nope. Mm. Police officers <laughs> would visit Ivan nope. eight times while he was on his deathbed, but he did not confess. Okay. However, he is said to have told his mother that he was responsible for the backpacker murders shortly before her death in 2001. And he really did love his mother. But Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure where this tidbit of information would come from because Margaret would have never told on her son. Yeah. So I don't know if this is true or not. All right. In an odd coda to this story, in 2012, Ivan Milat's grandnephew, 17-year-old Matthew Milat, was sentenced to 43 years in jail for murder. Oh. Is this his nephew or his son? It's... Who fucking knows? (laughs) (laughs) Might as well be another Paul. Yeah. Two years earlier, on November 20th, 2010, Matthew and three of his friends drove into the Belanglo State Forest. Oh, Jesus. It was David Octroloni's 17th birthday, but it was a terrible celebration. Matthew Malat murdered David Octroloni with an axe while another friend recorded the attack on his mobile phone. What? Uh Uh-huh. Jesus. While in prison, waiting for his sentence to be handed down, Matthew Malat wrote what can barely be described as poems. Ew. Uh-huh. And I can't even present the poem entitled Your Last Day because the spelling errors and the random capitalization are part of the charm. But he did keep <laughs> his grammar in check for this short poem entitled Cold Life. Are you ready? Uh-huh. I am not phased by blood or screams. Nothing I do will haunt my dreams. Maybe they might scare you. Cold-blooded killer, that's me, not you. I guess screams and dreams? Here I'm you yeah, and you. Yeah, scream and dreams does rhyme. And poems don't have to rhyme, I understand that, but... Yeah. Yeah. I hate when songs rhyme with you, and even more so in a fucking poem, because it's like, oh, come on. There's so many other words you could use. Your last yeah. day? Full of spelling errors, random capitalization... A lot of use of the word cunt, which they kind of like, they, um, oh god, what's it called? In the book, they like put little stars so you, you couldn't actually oh, read Oh, yeah, the asterisks. <laughs> asterisks, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and not much, like, right on that one either. All right, so did Ivan Milat act alone? They probably all participated in some weird shit. I'm on the same boat, personally. I don't think so. At least 
not for all of the murders, or at the very least, some of his brothers knew about it. Yeah, it just seems to me that it would be difficult for him to subdue the male partner. Yes. Or even just, I mean, even just two people. Even it two have to people. Be the male. Yeah, I. The family of Malat, Malats was just not a bunch of winners. No. But if we were to approach this purely astrologically. Okay. That I would say yes, because he's a fucking Capricorn. Yeah. Uh. And he needed to be in control, which can be seen by his behavior in relationships and yeah. how he handed out clothing and backpacking items to members of his family. And he had yeah. to have fucking loved it when his girlfriend wore Carolyn Clark's shirt. Yeah. There Ooh. is also, going back to how he, you need more than one person to abduct two people, he had abducted two people before. Those yeah. two girls, they did get away, but he might have learned from that. Well, and it, if he's offering hitchhikers rides, like, they just kind of jump in. Get, yeah, yeah, they're getting into the vehicle with you, and then however he has it still, but it still seems like it would be harder work, but he is a Capricorn, so he's dedicated, I guess. Uh, yes, and going back to, like, giving items to his family and his girlfriend, as a Capricorn, I can say that we do enjoy knowing something that nobody else knows. So, knowing- take trophies. Yes, yes. Also, speaking of a Capricorn, we're not great at delegating. Well, that's true. I didn't even like giving small tasks to my undergrads, even if it would have helped me by taking an item off my plate. I can't even imagine <laughs> yeah, delegating yeah. murder. I, yeah. And Capricorns just do not believe that anyone can do something as well as they can. And if it's not going to be done perfectly, then what's the fucking point? And yes, mm-hmm. I'm doing fine, everybody. <laughs> I think he did have some Capricorn. <laughs> His control issues were strong. Yeah. He was able to manipulate emotions, I feel like, in a way that Capricorns, like pure Capricorns, are not maybe quite able to. I'm not sure if I could keep someone in an abusive relationship for eight years. I'm not going to try, just to see. Uh, I'm just going to say hashtag goals. Thank you. I was the like, world thanks. oh, New Year's resolutions, anybody? <laughs> I don't know. But it also does seem likely that Richard fucking had to yeah. be involved. Yeah. He was such a fucking weirdo. I wouldn't stop just saying weird shit. Which is why Ivan was like, why the fuck did I let Richard in? He just blabbed it everywhere. Yeah. I didn't blab it to shit. And now I'm in jail. And he isn't. I'm not exactly sure why Richard didn't get sent to trial either. (laughs) I mean, he went down for the lesser charges of drugs and firearms. I'm not exactly sure when the firearms ban went into effect, but I believe it was after these murders and after like another big event happened so i think the fact that they had guns wasn't that weird they just might have had unregistered guns because australia is now is just like a no gun place oh completely basically wow um and yeah they don't have any uh school shootings (laughs) weird imagine that Uh uh-huh so sarah do you think ivan malat acted alone no no but he was the mastermind yeah (laughs) it was his idea it was his trigger that sent like getting the divorce and then sent him to actually go and murder someone. He had been practicing, like, he definitely deserved to go to prison for life, but. Yeah. I think some other Malats besides his grandnephew should also be in prison. Yeah. yeah. Although it's a weird fucking look that his fucking grandnephew murdered someone in the fucking Belanglo mm-hmm. forest. Yeah. There's Jesus some Christ. genetics. Fam- family trait. Yeah. There's some family trauma. <laughs> so that's what I have for Ivan Malat. How do you feel? Icky. 
Imagine me. I had to write the script and read a book. I just saw the Australian slang for vomit is liquid laugh, but there's nothing laughable about this. I also do not feel like laughing when I'm vomiting. Oh, no. I've never been laughing. Well, that's what I have. I do have some ass news. Ass news. Ass news. Ass news. Turn around. It's time for some ass news. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. (laughs) For the week of January 16th through 22nd. So this comes out on the 16th, but nothing exciting happens till Wednesday, January 18th, when Mercury will go direct in Capricorn. So have you struggled to get started this new year? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And obviously we fucking have since our first episode of 2023 is coming out in mid-January. Mm-hmm. Whoops. So let's blame our favorite scapegoat, Mercury. (laughs) Thanks, Mercury. Uh, Yes. Sorry. Thanks, no thanks. Uh, We started 2023 (laughs) with Mercury in retrograde, but it will be going direct on Wednesday. Okay. And it's going direct in Capricorn, which is the get shit done sign. Yay. So we could probably make up for lagging a little bit at the beginning of this month. Communication should become more straightforward. Uh, You may notice that you're better able to focus on tasks. Uh, Capricorns love a plan, especially a long-term plan. You can ask my two hosts. I have an Excel spreadsheet filled out for 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 my episodes for the year. I did tell them they did not need to use it. But Capricorns do love to plan. So if you haven't made a New Year's resolutions, or you don't even need to call it that, but like now would be a good time to like just think about what do you want to achieve this year? And in Capricorn, don't just aspire. You're going to use this Capricorn energy to map out how to actually achieve your goals as well. Okay. And then Friday, January 20th, the sun enters Aquarius. So we got this Capricorn episode out just in time. Because on Friday, the sun is moving into Aquarius. I fucking love Aquarius. Yes. Ugh. I'm indifferent. Wow, really? As a Pisces. Oh, yeah, maybe. I I often make the joke that I'm like, I purposefully was a week and a half late so that I was not going to skip be it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, I would rather not. Okay. Fair enough. Well, Capricorn energy does involve some aspect of wanting to impress other people, whereas Aquarius <laughs> is happy to march to their own drum. They don't give and a so fuck. They do not. They're intellectual, they're mm-hmm. innovative, and sometimes, lots of times, eccentric, which is my mm-hmm. favorite part. Yes. This is a great time to think outside the box for new ideas. Aquarius are also not very judgmental. So this is a great time to hang out with friends or make some new friends. Okay. As a fixed sign, though, Aquarius can get very stubborn. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Aquarius love change and new experiences. So expect a bit of unpredictability during Aquarius season. Loosen your Capricorn need for control. It might be as wishy-washy as a Libra. But I like Aquarius. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Anywho. Loosen your Capricorn need for control, relax, roll with the surprises, and and you will be more likely to enjoy them. Yeah. And then on Saturday, January 21st, we got a new moon in Aquarius. So the moon is resetting itself and beginning again with a fresh slate, and we can do the same. Uh, This is awesome timing because Mercury has gone direct earlier this week. And with the new moon in Aquarius, this is a great night to just dream your biggest dreams. 
Mm-hmm. And so Aquarius are progressive and forward thinking. So it's a good time to release yourself from some of your self-imposed limitations that you may have developed as a defense mechanism in response to past events. Aquarii, I don't know if that's right, look forward. Yeah. And then all of you negative self-talkers. Hi. Hi, me. <laughs> this is a day to make an effort to be nice to yourself. If you are doing negative self-talk, recognize it and stop it. And believe yeah. in your dreams. At least one night a month. Come on. We can do this. Negative yeah. boys and girls, friends. Mm-hmm. And as the dark night fades into the new day, the lunar new year will begin. And in Chinese astrology, this is the beginning of the year of the rabbit, which represents rabbit. vigilance, ingenuity, and wit. The rabbit is also a sim- And a fantastic sex life. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Use condom. Use birth control, folks. <laughs> The rabbit is also a symbol of longevity, peace, and prosperity, and 2023 is predicted to be a year of hope. Sunday, July 22nd is not only the Lunar New Year, Uranus will also go direct in Taurus. January. Oh, yep. January. Anywho, Uranus will go direct, and this week really wants all the planets to be moving forward again. Mm-hmm. Uranus is the planet of originality and individuality. It loves to look to the future and and can bring about drastic changes. Uranus rules Aquarius, so there's a lot of overlap in uh, characteristics there. Uranus will be slightly tempered by being in Taurus, which can be a bit of a stubborn sign. So here's another notification to not hold too tightly onto the past and to be willing to move forward. I probably won't do that, but... Okay. I saw you the boys on plans are optional. And I was saying something... Oh, I will not ask my fucking neighbors to jump my car for me. Like, I will not fucking ask anyone mm-hmm. to help me. And then Marty's like, you've been going to therapy. And I'm like, I can't say it's made me a better person. <laughs> 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 I'm not cured. Oh, <laughs> uh, Anywho, so that is what I have. Excellent. Semi big boy. Ooh, cool. Not cool. Don't cool. fuck your sister. Ew. Fuck. <laughs> Jesus. Aren't you so glad we're back, listeners? Yay! We're full of friendly advice. Mm. Awesome. Well, if you'd like to get in touch with us, I haven't checked our shit for as long as we've been off because I've been taking naps and relaxing. As you Taking baths, getting massages. us. So, I have not done one thing. But we would love to hear from you in 2023. So reach out to us on Twitter at True Trine, Instagram at True Crime Trine, Facebook TCT Podcast. You can email us directly at truecrimetrine at gmail.com. And then check out our website. It will be up to fucking date. Woo! www.truecrimetrine.com. And there will be some social media, at least for this week. We'll see how long I can keep going. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Bye. 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 Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine 
at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.